Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. At Greenlight Guru, the biggest thing we care about is the biggest thing you care about, improving the quality of life with medical devices built with less risk. We know we're not physically there helping you to build devices, but our software is. So why wouldn't we build our software to be aligned with industry standards like ISO 1345 or 14971? We're the only medical device QMS solution provider to be named by G2 as a category leader for 13 quarters in a row. Because it's an odd number, I can't do the math and tell you how many years, but what does that mean? It means medical device companies who are out there making a difference believe we're making a difference and they're telling people about it. If you're looking to make a difference by getting quality, life-saving devices to market on an average three times faster, contact Greenlight Guru today to start the conversation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols. I'm the host of today's episode. In today's episode, I got to speak with Mike Drews. We looked at the FDA's fiscal year report for 2022 inspections. We discussed the most common problems found during these inspections. The numbers don't lie. But sometimes there's more to the story than just the numbers. We covered a lot of ground and talked about things like some of the biggest mistakes companies make that result in Form 483 issuance, how companies should take this data and digest it into actionable advice, and then some ways medical device companies can inoculate themselves against the issues that have plagued our industry since the dawn of, well, maybe not the dawn of time, but at least the 90s. And much more. Mike Drews is the president of Vascular Sciences, where he works to educate the industry and offers help to bring your medical device to market in the most effective way possible. Mike is one of the most knowledgeable regulatory minds in the medical device industry. He knows where the gray areas of regulation are. It's one of my favorite things about Mike. He also has the heart of a teacher and the passion that he has for the industry shows when he has these discussions. So we hope you enjoy this episode with Mike Drews on common problems found during an FDA inspection. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today with us is Mike Drews, a voice you've heard on the podcast many times before, a familiar voice. Good to have you with us today, Mike. Thank you, as always, Eddie, and for the opportunity to have this discussion with you and your audience. We talked a little bit about today's topic. The title may change. We'll see how the conversation goes. But common problems found during FDA medical device inspections, particularly looking at 483s and whether or not the past is destined to repeat itself. I'm curious, looking over the last year, what are some of the common reasons why companies get in trouble during these FDA inspections? Let me just start out by prefacing this by saying I really wish that we would not have to talk about these kinds of topics. You know, I really wish that we worked in an industry where we wouldn't need the FDA telling us to do things that if we're going to call ourselves medical device professionals, we really should know to do them. And then the other thing that I just wanted to point out as we get started here, Eddie, is my intent here is not to criticize or not to bash on either individual companies or even on the FDA. We have way too much of that already. It's really to learn, learn from others' past mistakes so that we hopefully won't repeat them in the future. If I could just kind of interject one thing, as we were kind of talking through this, you make a really good point because the industry... It is regulated. We do see problems come up, but I almost see it as two halves of one industry. You know, the upper half may not need the regulation per se. I've heard you talk about this as well. True engineering, true biological research. If you're doing what you should do, 
Maybe you don't need those regulatory requirements. Those are for the people maybe who aren't doing quite enough. And so so I do think if we look at it and refocus the conversation to educate the bottom half, the newer to the industry, I don't know. That makes me feel a little better. I don't know about you. Well, good. And, and your point is certainly well taken. You know, I you know, some people might say, well, Mike, gee, that might work in the ideal world. You know what what Plano would call the ideal plane. But. I will acknowledge I didn't just fall off the turnip truck yesterday. We don't live in that kind of a world. And for whatever reasons, either on purpose or because of lack of knowledge, people don't always do these things. So let's let's dig into it and let's talk yeah. about some of the most common reasons why companies get in trouble with FDA during inspections, specifically 43 observations or sometimes even warning letters. So the top three are CAPAs, design controls, and complaints. Those are the top three reason why companies get either 43s or warning letters, CAPAs, design controls, and complaints. And in, the, in total, that represents about 35%, a little over one-third of all 43s are because of those three things, CAPAs, design controls, and complaints. And we'll dig into these further as we go. The next three in the top 10 list are purchasing controls, process validation, and medical device reports, or MDRs. So purchasing controls, process validation, and medical device reports, those three combined add up to about 20% of all 43 observations. And just rounding out the top 10 are non-conforming products, production and process controls, and acceptance activities, and finally, quality audits. So the top 10 that I just mentioned in total, those top 10 reasons represent 75% of all of the 43s that were issued in the last calendar year, 2022. That's sort of at the, at the high level. Now we can dig a little deeper, Eddie, if you want to. Yeah. So Kappa Design Controls Complaints. I looked through the FDA's website, I think since 2006, they've been putting out the Excel file and you can just go and you can see all of those different things. Kappa is consistently at the top. And I know you've talked to in the past about this, but what are your thoughts on well, not only why this might be, but yeah, how we can prevent this in the future? Well, so let's dig into Kappa in, in particular as our, as our first topic of discussion. About 12% of all of the 43s are specifically related to Kappas. And as you just pointed out, this is a trend that's been going on, not just for, for months or years, but decades. And yeah. I hope, Eddie, and that you, as well as our audience, appreciates the the irony, if not the hypocrisy, of, you know, CAPA, corrective action, preventative action, and yet we seem to do the same mistakes over and over. Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So CAPAs represent about 12% of 43. So let's dig into that a little bit deeper. So first of all, as, as our audience knows, CAPAs in general are the process that we try to use for correcting and most importantly, preventing problems. And as I've talked about in earlier podcasts, I think that the whole approach to CAPA is backwards. We shouldn't call it a CAPA. We should call it a PACA. The emphasis should be on prevention, not correction. But that's a topic of a different discussion. So what are the most common reasons why companies get in trouble because of CAPAs? One example, a manufacturer either did not document their procedures or they did not adequately capture their capital activities. To me, that's such a fundamental problem. You know, there's the, the adage in, in GMP training, if it wasn't documented, it didn't happen, right? So yeah. that's one of the most common reasons why companies get in trouble on the campus side. 
taking it a, a step further, one of the things that I see missing in a lot of companies' quality management systems is having any kind of established criteria of when a complaint becomes a kappa. You should definitely have criteria. It's not required in the QSR. Maybe it should be. But when I review companies' quality management systems, I make recommendations not simply based on what's required. Because remember, Eddie, and as, as we've talked about before, when a company is meeting the requirements, that's like being a C student. We can yeah. do better than that. So having criteria to, to determine in what circumstances a complaint or complaints, plural, go on to initiate a kappa is very important. And those criteria should not be static. In fact, your entire quality management system should not be static. It should be a living, breathing document. You should go back periodically and make sure that those criteria are still current. As a matter of fact, another, and I'm trying to make as many tangible suggestions here as I can, you should take some of your past complaints or perhaps even make up a fictitious complaint and put it into your system and see if the criteria that you have to determine whether a campus should be initiated addresses that particular complaint. If it does, terrific. If it doesn't, maybe you need to update that criteria. And then finally, back to the documentation piece, because it's stunning to me how so many companies, they don't have the demonstration that they've actually done this. Document the fact that you developed your criteria and that you tested your criteria and that you evaluated or updated the criteria. And even in those situations where you don't have to update it because your, your criteria is sufficient, okay, terrific, but put a note in there, hey, on such and such a day, we revisited this, we made up a fictitious complaint and we applied it and we saw that our criteria was sufficient and therefore no additional action was taken. Document that. That way, when somebody comes months or years later, you can point to it and say, hey, this is not something that we did you know, five years ago and never touched since then, but just like a risk management plan. Anybody that creates a risk management plan and sticks it in their three-door file cabinet, and I know I'm dating myself here, and never touches it again, they might be meeting the letter of the law, but they're certainly not meeting the spirit of the law. Does that make sense, Eddie? It makes total sense. And I love how you talk about documenting, even that you reviewed it. That's a great recommendation. What I've actually not heard very much. The other thing you mentioned was, you know, there's a regulatory requirement and meeting that requirement might make you a C student. Maybe you pass a grade. But there, we've talked in the past about almost, I think if I remember right, three different things to appeal to. We want to obviously be legally and regulatorily compliant. As a business, we want to be economically you know, viable. But then there's a third one, which is ethical. We want to be ethical. We want to be providing very uh, safe and effective devices to help our patients. So there's three different aspects you can be looking at this through. We think about the business side of Kappa. You know, a lot of people look at it as a drag on the business, but it should be lifting the business up, streamlining those processes, making things better. I agree 100 percent. And that's uh, going back to the documentation example is, is a perfect illustration of uh, what you just said, Eddie. And because I remember years ago when I started out in this business as an R&D engineer, I loathed documentation. And still, to yeah. this day, I, even as a regulatory consultant, I know it sounds kind of ironic. I loathe documentation because most of it is a complete and total and utter waste of time, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. But when I talk about documentation here, like, for example, document that we visited this, but no additional action was necessary. I'm not talking about creating a 300-page PhD dissertation. I'm talking about maybe a couple of sentences, maybe even one sentence might be sufficient that, that just, you know, synopsis, so summarizes rather what we did. That's all. The simple reality is 
we're spending more time talking about what it would take to create, you know, two sentences of documentation here than what would actually, uh, you know, the time to do it. It's, it sounds really trivial when we just break it down like that, but I actually think it's a really powerful point you're making because a lot of procedures I've seen in the past were written not to help the business be efficient. They were more written to impress. You know, we have our flowery engineering speak, but perhaps <laughs> or, maybe we... <laughs> or in some cases to cover your, you know what? There's that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so early in my career, I worked in the FAA. Some, some people know this. I was in the aerospace. We were creating new materials for custom aircraft interior. And I was producing a report for my boss. It was one of my first jobs out of college. I turned around, hit in my report. He started flipping through it and he turned around and gave it immediately back to me and said, Etienne, I don't want any fluff in my reports. <laughs> and I thought, well, what was I just, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> in medicine, we call that the bullet. You know, mm. what's the bottom line? What's the takeaway? Yeah. Okay. So we talked a little bit about Kappa. Anything we're missing here so far? No, I think we can move on to the next one. Okay. Design control problems. You said 12% of 43 observations, pretty close to the same as Kappa's uh, occurred in 2022. Can you provide some specific examples of these uh, design control problems and how maybe we can avoid them? Great question. So Kappa's 12%, design controls is another 12%. Now, obviously, design controls is a very, very broad topic. So right. let's you know start to peel that onion back further and you know look at some specific examples. So to start, the most common source of a 43 observation under the category of design controls is under design validation. Now, I hope somebody doesn't need a PhD in engineering to appreciate that design validation is one of the most important parts of the entire design process. Design validation essentially means demonstrating that your device conforms to the defined user need and its intended uses. I mean, to me, basic, basic, basic. And if somebody doesn't do that, this might sound harsh you know, to some people. I have no more polite way to describe that as a boneheaded mistake. I mm. have other words I could use to describe it that are not so politically correct. Oh, sure. <laughs> the, the polite. And again, I'm not trying to be harsh here, but I'm just trying to be honest. You know, it goes back to, I think I mentioned earlier, I consider myself to be a medical device professional, and I do not use that word professional lightly. Along with it comes the responsibility, including knowing what the heck you're doing. So the most frequent cause of 483s under the design controls, as I said, is design validation. And oftentimes, you know, linking that to risk management. Mm. So for example, not performing a risk analysis, that happened 30 times in 2022 that we know of, right? not performing a risk management, not documenting the results of a risk analysis. So once again, we're back to if it isn't documented, you know, it didn't happen. Basic, basic, basic. And don't just think from a regulatory or a quality perspective, uh, Edian, as you and some of your audience probably know, I spend some of my time working as an expert witness in medical device product liability cases. Just imagine if I, as an expert witness, if, if your company gets sued because a, a patient is injured using one of your devices, and I, as an expert witness, am able to point out that, oh, by the way, this company did not seem to do a risk analysis, you know, as part of the development and didn't periodically update that risk analysis through complaints and post-market surveillance and all that kind of stuff. I hope it doesn't take a JD from Harvard after your name to appreciate ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. 
other causes, other reasons why companies got 43 observations under that same category of design controls, specifically design validation, lack of or inadequate procedures. That happened almost 20 times. Not validating software, not using production equivalent devices in validation studies. Think about that editing. Mm -hmm. Not using a production equivalent device. In a validation study, what are you validating? Are you validating a prototype? You know, I mean, that yeah. doesn't make any sense. Now, to be fair, and again, all of these things we can dig into probably in as individual podcast discussions themselves. So I don't want to overgeneralize. The design controls, one of the most basic tenets of your design controls is that you want to do your final VNV testing on your final device. But to be marketed. Always yeah. Correct. But in other words, a production you know, representative model. But that's not always realistic and that's not always necessary. There are ways that you can get around it. But here are examples where FDA specifically pinged companies for not doing that. And I'm assuming that the reason why they got pinged is because they didn't have a justification for why they didn't use the production uh, quality device or maybe their justification was not sufficient. So I think it's important that we look beyond just these numbers, beyond these uh, statistics and, and start, you know, thinking about the causes. Just a few other quick examples of design validation problems, not establishing acceptance criteria prior to the validation. So how do you do a validation if you don't know if you're going to pass or not because you haven't defined the, the criteria? And I'm not mm -hmm. talking about, you know, just one off kind of thing or here's, you know, one example of one company that's operating in somebody's garage or basement. I'm talking about, you know, multiple examples of the same problems throughout the industry, not documenting the results in the design history file, the DHF. Okay, that doesn't bother me as much, but it's still a problem. And finally, not confirming that the device conforms to defined user needs and intended purposes. Isn't this the entire purpose of the design validation process? That happened multiple times, you know, about a dozen times that one specific thing happened. So together, design validation and design controls account for about half of all the design control related citations in 43 observations. So once again, I want to illustrate that we're not talking about, you know, one-off kind of events here. You know, we're talking about for whatever reasons that I quite frankly cannot completely understand, these these problems seem to be endemic throughout our our, our industry. Yeah, it, it, when when you talk we're talking about the risk management side. I was thinking about why you know, why would we have this problem with risk management? I think one of the things I've, I've seen this in multiple companies where you throw together some sort of risk management file for your design and you go on and you move through the engineering. They say, oh, we got to finish that risk management file. And you put a team on that and it's a reverse engineered document. You look at your, your design and you reverse engineer the risk analysis so that it meets what you want. It's, it's embarrassing to say that, that that's been uh, the case, but I think that's part of the problem. The other problem is some of the, some of the ways we produce these risk documents. They don't inform the design because they don't have to inform the design. There's no mechanism to to force that. And maybe this goes to, you know, one of the main issues that we see from uh, the reference of Part 820.30, which is not establishing some of the procedures for some of these uh, activities. I don't know. 
I think you're right, Eddie. And, and before we move on to the third of the top three most common reasons for 483s, I'll give you one or two very recent examples. Just in the news a week ago from when we did this this podcast was an example of a company that got pinged by FDA for failure to, to verify that its washing procedure sufficiently removes foreign material from the manufacturing process. Mm. I mean, this might sound harsh to somebody, to some people, but I'm I'm sorry, professional, you know, if we're going to call ourselves professional, that should mean something. How does somebody get out of engineering school and work in this industry without knowing such a basic thing? And I would argue that if they don't know that, they have no business working in this in this industry. Failure to address it's that that same example. Failure to address the residual sterilant levels. This is on a on a catheter after the catheter is 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 washed and sterilized. So who knows? You know, this is a catheter that's going into a patient, possibly into their cardiovascular system or their urinary system or their GI system. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's going into the patient. Don't you think it might be a good idea to make sure that, gee, we don't want to have a lot of gunk or other stuff on there that's going to get into the person? I mean, Mm -hmm. does it really take a a PhD in engineering to to appreciate that? So that was just last week that that happened. So these are, you know, recurring problems, regrettably. So I think about, and I know we have a third one that we need to get to, but I think about Kappa design controls and... I was just driving through, thinking through some of these different uh, reasons why this might be consistently an issue. And there's two things that come to my mind when I think of why this might have happened, because a lot of it, a lot of the the reasons you go, again, is is not establishing the documentation or not performing, um, whether it's risk analysis and and uh, and connecting those things. One of them might be the laziness with documentation. You know, we, you mentioned, I don't like documentation. I get that. And that makes sense. But the other is, I wonder sometimes, well, with Kappa particularly, how much of our industry truly knows how to do root cause analysis? I don't want to, you know, root cause this whole situation to death, but root cause analysis, what is the root cause at, uh, at some of these issues? And Indeed. And I know you've, you're offering that probably as a rhetorical question, um, <laughs> but I can't help but, uh, you know, comment briefly on that because I see a lot of people talk about the root cause of the problem, but rarely mm-hmm. ever. Rarely do I see anybody get anywhere remotely close to the actual, the real root cause. They're oftentimes dancing around the the surface, you know, superficial manifestations or symptoms of much deeper problems. And so in my opinion, Eddie, and again, I know this is going to sound harsh to some people, I think what is the root cause of many, if not most of the problems that we run into, not just the ones we're talking about today, but in our industry in general, is what's up here, you know, what's between the ears. I mean, how can you overlook some of these most basic yeah. things. I, I want to add one thing to the root cause thought too. So that makes sense for Kappa. It's a it's an easy connection there. But for design controls, it may not be quite as easy a connection. But I still think the root cause analysis or the ability to root cause an issue is part of the problem. And I want to see what you think about this. Because when we talk about design validation, validating those user needs, I user need itself requires a certain amount of root cause thinking to get to the true problem you're trying to solve at, for a product. So it just I think it's another way of thinking. Are you solving the right problem? Are you asking the right questions? These are all riffs on the, the same you know overall yeah. theme. So just okay. closing the loop on the last portion of our discussion, I just want to remind our audience, because I may have misspoke a moment ago, that what we just talked about, design validation and design change, these two things together represent half of all of the reasons why companies get pinged by the FDA under the topic of design controls, half of them. Yeah. 
So we go round out with the top three. The last one, complaint handling, led to 11% of the 43 observations. Do you have some specific examples for uh, complaint problems? Absolutely. And just as a, as a preference to my response here, I teach entire courses in, in some of these areas. And one of them in particular is on complaint handling and post-market surveillance. So let's start out at the beginning here. What's the definition of a complaint? Well, it turns out that in the regulation itself, there are at least three or four different definitions of, of complaints. So one of the recommendations that I have to companies is come up with your own definition of complaint. You're not necessarily forced to choose one of the ones that are in the regulation. Those are a good place to start. But take that definition, or in this case, take these combination of definitions and tailor them to your particular kinds of devices, your particular kinds of technologies. Because remember, one of the challenges with regulation and guidance, one of the challenges with the quality system regulation is that it's written for a very, very broad audience. You know, the medical device industry is a very broad industry from, from Band-Aids to artificial hearts and everywhere in between. So we can't take this one-size-fits-all approach. So come up with your own definition. And then here are some of the most common examples that FDA pinged companies in this particular area of complaint handling. Did not document their procedures. 140 times. This happened in last year. Ugh. 140 times. Did not document their complaint handling procedures. Did not maintain their complaint files. That also was a pretty common one. The next two are just stunning to me. Complaints of device failures were not investigated. Complaint of device failures were not investigated. This happened almost 25 times. What is the point of having an, a complaint handling system? In other words, what is the point of getting complaints or post-market surveillance or anything else if you're not going to act on it? Now, even if, because remember, I don't want to overgeneralize here. I'm not suggesting that every complaint should be investigated to the same degree. As a matter of fact, I'm adamantly against that. I think that we need to take sort of a triage approach, kind of like when you go to the emergency room, a person that is having a heart attack is going to get treated first, I hope, as opposed to a person that has a splinter in their finger. Sure. We should take the same logic here. So even if you have a complaint, let's say it's a cosmetic defect. Let's say that it's like a, a little scratch on the housing of the, out, the outside of the device that somebody you know tells you about your device. Okay, fine. You note that, but there's no, it, it, you know, there's no action really nece necessary because it's purely aesthetic. It's not going to affect the the safety, efficacy, performance, function of the device, and so on. So we should not assume that we have to handle all complaints equally. I don't think that makes any sense. But nonetheless, complaints of device failures were not investigated. That's inexcusable. Mm -hmm. Complaints were not reviewed and evaluated to determine if an investigation was necessary or lacked rationale for not conducting an investigation. That's very similar to the one that I just said. What's the point of getting this information if you're not going to, to at least think about it or investigate it a little bit? And maybe your conclusion is that no investigation, no further investigation is necessary. And here's one or two reasons why. The last two examples, and then feel free to chime in with, with questions or sure. maybe your own examples. Complaints that were deemed reportable that were not promptly investigated. Now, again, I don't want to get into the weeds of complaint handling because there are different requirements depending on the type of complaint, depending on the severity. Sometimes companies have to look into this within a few days, sometimes within a month, sometimes longer. But nonetheless, you need to 
uh, investigate these things, let me just say, in a timely fashion. Uh, and don't just wait until you have multiple complaints. You know, trending, you know, is is an important thing to, to keep in mind as well, because you might have one complaint today and another of the same complaints tomorrow and three more of the same complaints the day after that. When you start to see an escalation, this is something where you got to get off your you know what and you need to, you know, stop, you know, whatever else you're doing and say, hey, what the heck is going on here? Yeah. Especially if this can have a significant impact on the safety and efficacy of the device. And regrettably, Eddie and I see examples where even in the class three PMA universe, that doesn't always happen. Things slip through the cracks. And finally, the complaint records did not contain required information. In other words, they were they were missing information. But more often, I see it as the complaints did not contain adequate information. And we could have an entire discussion of what constitutes, you know, what is adequate, how much detail that you need, and so on. But at the very least, you need to make sure that you have the required information. You need to make sure that your your name and your date is on the paper, so to speak. So those are some of the most common reasons why companies got in trouble from the uh, under the category of complaint handling. Does that make sense? It does. The thing that stood out to me as shocking is a company would deem it reportable but not investigate it. They have convicted themselves in that situation, if you know what I mean. I wish I had a rational explanation, you know. I, I and I suppose you know there might be some circumstance that might you know be justifiable to, to 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 do that but in the 30 years that i've been playing this game now i can't off the top of my head think of one and as you go through those i think of i still think about the root cause and this may be me just jumping to an assumption here so which is why i try to always be you know surround myself with people smarter why i one of the love conversations with you what could promote somebody or incentivize somebody to maybe be in charge of that complaint handling and get something in and not necessarily investigate it appropriately, whether it's they don't know, how the, the, again, going to the root cause analysis, but maybe even upstream of that, I think about management responsibility and producing a culture of we want to hear about problems. You know, we want to know these things. We want to investigate those things. I, I wonder if sometimes that is part of the problem. It's a good question. I would say two things. First of all, going back to what I said a moment ago, the the root cause of many, if not most problems, in my opinion, the true root cause is, you know, what's up here or perhaps in some cases what's not up here. And let me be a little more specific what I mean by that. And this is another, you know, recurring theme that I've talked about over these many years of podcasts. And that is so many people, they're focusing on following the regulation, ticking the boxes not trying to understand what is the intent of this regulation? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? Why is it important here? I have discussions with my customers all the time because I want them to understand not just what the regulation says. I mean, anybody that's graduated elementary school that knows how to read, they can read the regulation. But more importantly, why is the regulation there? What is it intended to do? As a matter of fact, I just created a new slide for, for some of my presentations the other day. I came up with another of my regulatory litmus tests. If it makes sense, meaning the regulation, if the regulation makes sense, then we shouldn't need it. Because quite frankly, we should all know that we should do it anyway. And if the regulation doesn't make sense, then we shouldn't have it. <laughs> uh. if, if, if it makes sense, we shouldn't need it. If it doesn't make sense, we shouldn't have it. I, I don't know, Eddie, and maybe uh, in my old age, I'm getting a little um, <laughs> uh, uh, naive or something. But 
I mean, does that make sense to you? <laughs> it's I still so it's interesting. There will always be that upper fifty percent or upper ten percent. Maybe it's a ninety ten thing. I don't know. But uh, how many people are listening to things like this who don't want to be better? You know, or who are researching and looking at these statistics who don't want to be better? The ones who are making perhaps you know committing the most problems. They may be the ones who aren't really interested in in uh, perfecting their practices. But it's a good point. That's really interesting. So. All right. Talking about Kappa design control, complaint handling, you've looked at this almost on a yearly basis, I think for a few years now. What do you see as far as trending? What do you see as new here? Anything? Yeah, great, great question. And, it's, and I'm glad you brought up that word I mentioned a moment ago in terms of trending, because when it comes to, for example, complaint handling, but other things, trending is, is very important. As a matter of fact, it's a regulatory requirement in a lot of the sections of the QSR. And yet we don't seem to do that for the kinds of things that we're talking about today. And specifically what I mean by that is the short answer to your question of what we're, is anything that we're talking about today new? The, the short answer, regrettably, Etienne, is absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, the top three reasons that we talked about the uh, for the top three most common reasons for getting 483s, um, Kappa's design controls and complaints, they were the same top three reasons for the last 13 years. The same top three reasons, design wow. controls, campus, and complaints for the last 13 years. And over that same period of time, they all they always added up to approximately a third, you know, plus or minus a couple percent maybe, but approximately a third of all 483s. And looking even a little bit longer period of time, the same pattern holds for the last 16 of the, of the past 17 years. So these are not new things. Within the, the design controls and the design validation and design change, these are, you know, for years have been the, uh, among the most commonly cited reasons, of, you know, problems cited in, in 483s. I hate to say it, but we are the poster children for Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result, following the letter of the law over and over and over without trying to understand the spirit of the law, what I call the regulatory logic and expecting a different result. You know, it's interesting. You've probably heard of the adage, practice makes perfect. Well, yeah. that's actually not true. Practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. We have gotten very good as an industry, because we've been practicing this for a long time, of making the same mistakes over and over and over. We've gotten very good at that. Yeah. So practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Again, maybe I'm naive <laughs> or maybe I'm being too harsh. As I said at the beginning, and I mean this sincerely, my intention is not to simply bash or play the blame game, but to try to use these as specific lessons to be learned. I hope through you know our discussions, not just today, but all of our podcast discussions, we're trying to do that. Absolutely. And when I look at this, you can look at it as the glass half empty, the glass half full, or as the engineer looks at it says, and asks the question, well, which way is it trending? <laughs> this And if I'm a med tech company looking at this, I look at this and say, okay, well, now I, I can compare myself and start doing my audits and comparing how is my company doing on these different, different things like this. Don't be like the college student who relies on the incompetence of their peers. Try to be in the top echelon and, uh, and really 
work towards uh, uh, perfection in these areas. Absolutely. So maybe we should wrap this up with some final thoughts and some some takeaways for our audience. Yeah, very quickly. What did we miss? Uh, and and you know, I do. I I would like to hit just real quickly. When FDA finds these problems during the inspection, it's not the kiss of death. I don't know if we want to go there necessarily, but uh, do you want to talk about that at all? I know we're almost out of time. Well, a little bit. I mean, so so when FDA finds these problems, depending on the severity of the problem, they have a few choices. One is to issue what's called a 43 observational observation. And those legally you're not responsible for responding to, although most companies do. And in fact, the average number of citations in a particular 43 observation is about three and a half right now for for the last for the last calendar year so so roughly about 3 or 4 observations are typically in a 43 a little more severe than a 43 would be an actual warning letter and a warning letter is something that the manufacturer is required to respond to and then finally the ultimate penalty if you will would be a consent decree and that would be you know if the company is really doing you know things that are not good or that they shouldn't be doing and so on so those are sort of at a at a high level the the options we can you know in maybe a different discussion if you want we can go into those details more but, but yeah, anyway no, those are the options that FDA has so that's a great synopsis or a summary of that I, you know one of the things that stood out to me just kind of going back to high level again looking at all of the top reasons in these different categories whether it's design controls cap a complaint One of the things that I consistently saw is a lack of or inadequate procedures. And I just want to highlight one little thing about this, because sometimes, like you said, we want to write a procedure to check a box sometimes, but really that procedure should be to ensure a consistent, reproducible quality product. And so these things should be written in this way so that they could do that. But to be fair, we, we, as I've said before, we got to be careful about overgeneralizing. So not having a procedure, a lack of a procedure, that's, you know, obviously a problem. But most of the time, it's not having an adequate procedure, because now you get into the whole gray, very fuzzy area of what constitutes an adequate procedure. One of my friends who used to do GMP training and would teach people how to write an SOP, a standing standard operating procedure, he liked to use the example of, imagine you wanted to write an SOP for scrambling eggs right? We know how to scramble eggs for breakfast. One way to do it is you could write it in, in, in one line, you know, cook some eggs in a pan, end of discussion. Another way you can do it is go on, you know, for hundreds of thousands or thousands of pages, you can specify the genomic makeup of the chicken that where the egg comes from. You can talk about the <laughs> what direction that you stir the eggs and what RPMs and how much turbulence and shear and so on. So it's this whole nature of what constitutes an adequate description that I find to be very interesting. And that, again, is a topic of a different discussion. That's a great point. Let's go ahead and talk about today's takeaways. I know we're close to being out of time. Tappa, design controls, complaints, the top three 483s, it's nothing new. One of the things that I took away was don't be a C student as a medical device company. That is, there, there are better things to aspire to. But what are some of the takeaways you would advise our, our listeners today? If you had to have surgery, would you want it to be done by a C-rated surgeon? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, although... Speaking from somebody who used to take, teach medical school, that's a that's a scary <laughs> a thought. You know what they call the person that graduates last in their class in medical school? A doctor. A doctor. <laughs> oh. But the same can be said for engineers and that's attorneys true. and, dare I say it, regulatory professionals. So anyway, more seriously, to wrap things up, so I think we talked about a, a lot of good stuff today. In terms of audits, 
one thing that that companies should be aware of we've we've had you know through covid there's been you know fewer audits audits and certainly fewer uh, on-site inspections that, that there has been in the past but now that's all coming back to normal so don't you know feel that well if you haven't heard from the FDA for the last couple of years that that's going to likely continue because they are now catching up but more importantly in terms of the substance Remember a couple of the key things that we talked about. First of all, in terms of capital, first of all, why is the emphasis on the CA as opposed to the PA? Maybe we should call this a, a PACA as opposed to a CAPA. Think about, you know, what you talked about earlier, you know, root cause and try to ask yourself, what is the, the real reason why this regulation is in place? You know, to try to avoid problems like a failure to verify that the device has been washed properly before we stick it into a patient. I mean, I'm sorry, but is there any better word to describe that than boneheaded? You know, I just don't I just don't get it. Oh, yeah. Probably the, the most significant is recommendation is use these things that we're talking about today as lessons to be learned. And what I mean by that is take the statistics and we can as part of the podcast and we can provide the sources, but take these things and apply them in your own company. In other words, ask yourself and your team, could these problems or similar problems happen to us? In other words, where is it written that you have to wait for a problem to be reported to you? That's corrective action, preventative action. But the whole philosophy of reversing that prevention and then correction is to take a look at other people's mistakes and say, is it possible for something the, the same or something similar to happen to us? If it's not possible, then then terrific. But if it is possible, then the next step is, okay, what kinds of measures can we do to try to minimize the chance of that happening? To me, those are all attributes of a true medical device professional, not somebody who's just simply ticking boxes on a form. But maybe, Elian, that's just me and I'm naive and, and you know, or smoking my socks and this couldn't possibly happen in the real world. It makes me think of something my dad used to tell me, an intelligent man learns from his mistakes. A wise man learns from others' mistakes. And I hopefully, like that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank your you so much. A, your father was a smart guy. <laughs> he was. He was. I need to call him. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mike. This has been fantastic. Send him the podcast. I'll do it. I'll definitely do it. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Looking forward to future discussions. And yeah, we'll let you guys get back to it. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few of the points I took away from the conversation are things haven't changed a lot over the years. Kappa, design controls, and complaints are still the top three issues the FDA finds every year. But it doesn't have to be this way. If you're working with or for a medical device company, use these FDA reports to get a feel for where your company may be failing and evaluate those processes within your own organization. Don't rely on the incompetence of your peers. Now, all that said, a lot of times we want to go in and we want to evaluate our organization using these tactics internally, you know, in our own mind, we think, okay, I know I need to look, check off these different things. Use this data as well to show the rest of your organization. This is why it's important. These companies typically get these 483s. We don't want to be one of those companies that is making these same problems. Again, also one of the possible culprits behind these numbers is the lack of knowledge in the industry around root cause analysis. Make sure your team knows how to think divergently and has a good set of tools that they're familiar with for using root cause analysis thinking. If you enjoyed this episode, please reach out to Mike Drews on LinkedIn and let him know. Also, I'd personally love to hear from you via email, etienne.nichols at greenlight.guru or look me up on LinkedIn. 
If you're interested in learning more about our software built for MedTech, whether it's document management system, CAPA management system, design controls and risk management, or electronic data capture, EDC for clinical investigations, this is all connected software that's built by MedTech professionals for MedTech professionals. Check it out at www.greenlight.guru. The other thing I want to point you towards is we are going to be having a true quality roadshow for the year of 2023. We're going to go to cities like Minneapolis, Boston, a couple of cities in California, Houston, Texas in a few weeks. And I think we're going to Amsterdam as well. So definitely check that out. Just Google true quality roadshow 2023 or go to my LinkedIn. There should be a link in my profile and you should be able to find it that way. If not, reach out to me again, ask for these questions. As always, thanks again. Y'all are the best. Take care. The best medical device companies don't just follow the rules, they lead with quality. At Greenlight Guru, we try to do the same. Our medical device success platform is based on the latest FDA and ISO standards, as well as the best practices of medical device manufacturers who lead the industry with products of the highest quality. If you're ready to bring safer, better medical devices to market faster, contact greenlight.guru today.